Well, good morning, church. So great to see all of you here today. Um, Last week, we began a new sermon series uh, that we're calling Welcome. Uh, We looked at, we began by looking at two uh, nefarious diseases that are rampant in our culture that all of us are infected by in one way or the other. We talked about first individualism, um, that we are infected by this disease that makes us lonelier and more isolated than ever before. And we also talked about consumerism that has made us more discontent, more self-centered, more restless than ever before. And the good news is, is that God wants something better for you. He's planned something better for you. He invites you into something better. He is inviting you out of isolation and into community, a life of authentic relationship and love. And he's inviting you out of restlessness and directionlessness and into mission, a life of tremendous purpose and meaning. And so God is saying to every one of you, welcome, welcome every one of us to experience his invitation into community, into mission through this peculiar people called the church. So we're looking at these seven different metaphors of the church. Um, Last week, we looked at the household that together we are fellow brothers and sisters with our big brother, Jesus, and the father's house, the oikos of the father. Um, And this week, we're shifting to look at the, the metaphor of the temple, that we are not just fellow siblings in a household, we are fellow bricks in a house. Now, on the surface, this is not quite as inspirational of an image to be a brick. Um, there is a pile of bricks in my backyard that every morning when I drink my coffee, I look out upon it from a recent project that I haven't gotten rid of them yet. And I tell you, when I look upon this pile of bricks, I am not inspired to be a better man. Um, it is not, at least on the surface, an animating metaphor um, to live a better life. And, but I want us to see that this is actually a very powerful and pervasive metaphor throughout the Bible. Um, and it has a whole lot of beautiful things to tell us about what it means to be God's people. So let's pray, and then we'll go to God's Word. Our Father, we thank you so much uh, that you have given us the Word of God that breaks light into our darkness, and we need that, God. I need that. And I pray that you would help me and help all of us now with the power and the equipping of the Holy Spirit so that we would not just hear your Word today, but so that we could respond to it with obedience and love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So our scripture passage is the same passage from last week. I remember I talked about how Paul is kind of a mixed metaphor guy. Um, He doesn't really stay focused. He kind of piles metaphors up on on top of the other. And so this morning we're in the same text, Ephesians 2, verses 19 through 22. And then I'm just going to read to you a few verses from 1 Peter 2 just to show you that this was a, a pretty common metaphor that many of the apostles used in the early church. So Ephesians 2, verse 19. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of his oikos, his household. And then now he does kind of a a shift of metaphors built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling place in which God lives by his spirit. And then we hear in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, I'll just read to verse 6, as you come to Jesus Christ, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house 
to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Family of God, this is the word of the Lord. So since we have moved from a relational metaphor of the family into an architectural metaphor of the temple, I thought instead of using a typical sort of bullet point outline today, I would actually give you a blueprint. Uh, I hope you appreciate this. I worked really hard on it. It's very difficult to draw with my skills um, in in keynote. Anyway, I'm going to talk about the blueprint that actually Paul lays out quite clearly in chapter 2, verse 20, because he talks about at least three three things. First of all, he talks about the, the superstructure, which is our common life, our common life together. Second, he talks about the foundation, which is our common authority. And then third, he talks about the cornerstone, which is our common identity. So those are the three things we're going to look at. The, the superstructure, our common life, the foundation, common authority, cornerstone, common identity. All right? So first, let's look at the superstructure, our common life. Let's dive into this metaphor. Both Paul and Peter say, you are a holy temple, verse 21, a dwelling place for God by the Spirit, verse 22. Peter says, you are a spiritual house, 2 verse 5. What is up with this metaphor? Well, you may know, some of you who, who maybe know the Old Testament, is that the temple was the most important building to the Old Testament people of God. Um, it was the, the place of God's dwelling. Now, the Old Testament Israelites, of course, believed that God lived everywhere, that he dwelt on heaven and earth, as the Psalms um, often affirm. Yet, at the same time, God said, told them that he would dwell in a special, intensified way in the temple. First the tabernacle, then the temple that was the place of God's dwelling in the midst of the people. It was the place where the Ark of Covenant was kept. It was the place where sometimes God's uh, Shekinah glory, his special intensified glory would appear. Um, It was where the priests would go to perform their duty. It was where you went to make sacrifices. It was where, essentially, you encountered God in the building of the temple. And it was that way for a couple thousand years until something happened. Do you know what it is? The incarnation of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ comes along, and he starts saying some quite uh, even offensive things about this temple. One day, one day, he was hanging out with his friends in front of the temple, and they were all standing around in front of this massive building, and Jesus turned and looked up at this temple. You can read about it in John 2. And he said, you know what, y'all? This is what he said. He said, tear this temple down, and I'll build it back up again in three days. And they were like, what? what, are you, what how do you think you can do that? You don't even have a construction crew. You're just a homeless rabbi. But of course, after he died, John says, they realized that Jesus was not talking about the temple. He was talking about his body, that his own person has become the new temple, not because the Old Testament temple wasn't important, but because the entire temple system was pointing to him. All of the priests were about him. All of the sacrifices were about him. All of the traditions, all of the rules, all of the commands, all of the laws, they were all about him, and they're fulfilled in him. So in him, when he walks upon the earth, the temple is no longer needed. So if that's true, though, the question becomes, is there still a special place where God dwells on earth? Is there a place where you can go and meet God? Is there a place where you can go and encounter God's Shekinah glory, his special presence? Is there there anywhere now on the earth, now that the temple has been replaced by Jesus, is there anywhere you can go 
to encounter the presence of God? And the answer, according to Paul and Peter, is yes, the temple now is his people. Through Jesus, the people themselves have become the temple. They are the building. They, they together form a new spiritual house, the place where the spirit dwells. Now, this was a radical idea in the first century. In fact, of all the accusations made against Christians in the first century, one of the funniest accusations was that they were atheists. Roman pagans accused the early Christians of being atheists. Why? Because it was not just the Jewish religion that was centered in a temple. It was every other pagan religion that was centered in a temple. No one could conceive of a religion without the temple in all of its accoutrements. So suddenly, here's a religion that does not require a temple. Can you just imagine, you're, you're a newly converted Christian, you're talking with your, you know, your pagan neighbor, you're at a kid's soccer game, or I'm sure they didn't, I don't know where, what they were doing hanging out back then at the, at the Colosseum or whatever. You're just talking to your pagan neighbor, and, and, and he says, oh, so I've heard you've, you've uh, joined this, uh, this, new, this new cult. Well, what's it called? Christianity. So yes, yeah, yeah, I've become a Christian. He says, so, so where's your temple? And you say, oh, oh we, we don't have a temple. You don't have a temple? Well, where do you go to worship God? Oh, we, we, we just, we worship in our homes. You worship in your homes? What about all the blood? You know, where do you, where do you make your sacrifices? Oh, oh, we don't have sacrifices. Jesus is our sacrifice. You don't have sacrifice. Well, what does your priest do? Oh, oh we, don't, we don't have priests. We're all priests. Jesus is our priest. What? You know, you can see the guy's mind is just blowing because no one can conceive. No wonder they were called atheists because you cannot conceive of even a religion is a religion at all without a solid building brick upon brick. And so what is so radical about this is that while every other religion in the world was centered in a physical temple made of stones, Christianity was centered in a spiritual community made of people. The community has become the temple. There is a place where you can go to meet God. There is a place where his Shekinah glory now dwells. There is a place where you can encounter the spirit, and it's the people. It's not a building where brick is upon brick. It's the community where person is upon person. This is only intensifying the message of community that we began last week. Last week, we talked about how in Christ, we are siblings in a common family, which is a pretty intense metaphor. However, even in a family, you can still kind of ignore each other, as you know well, do you not? Uh, you, you can leave, you can walk out, uh, you can, you know, not call your mom for two weeks and make her cry. You can, um, sorry, I just made some of you feel guilty, I, I saw that. Um, you know, in a family, even if you have a really dysfunctional family or even a functional family, you can still pretty much have your own identity differentiated from your siblings and your family, right? However, if being a Christian is not just that you are a fellow family member in the same household, but you are fellow bricks cemented together in a new house, that just changes the ballgame because when you're a brick, you cannot say to, to the fellow bricks, hey, hey, bricks, I'm, I, peace out. I'm not going to be a part of this wall anymore. I'm moving over here. I'm going to this new wall. I'm going I'm to be a paperweight or what? I don't know what a brick would aspire to be. Um, but a brick is not even fully a brick without the other bricks. It, it thwarts its innate identity to be a solitary brick. You know, I love Legos. Legos was my favorite toy as a child, and I still have about 11 buckets of them. I mean, they're just, you know, thousands of them all over the place. My kids play with them, and Legos are wonderful, except by themselves, Legos are the worst, because I'm like going into my kid's room at night to tip, you know, to tuck them in, and I've got my bare feet on, and, you know, I tiptoe up to, up to my kid, and I step on that Lego, and it is like a medieval torture device. You know, a Lego 
built in with other Legos is fulfilling its Lego purpose, but a Lego by itself is a foot wound hazard, right? That's, and so we know that we are not fully ourselves, just as a brick is not fully a brick, unless it's with bricks, and just as a Lego is not fully a Lego unless it's built in with other Legos, so you cannot actually be fully who you are meant to be in Christ without being built in with fellow Christians. You're not a brick laying in the grass trying to make your way. You're not a Lego on a carpet. You are a living stone cemented together. A solitary Christian life is actually an impossibility. It is a biblical impossibility. Paul even goes so far to say, Ephesians 2.22, this is quite a radical verse if you think about it. He says, you all together have become a dwelling place of God's spirit. The spirit can't fill an individual brick. The spirit fills the house the bricks create. Now, I never think that Paul would go so far as to say individuals are not filled with the spirit because he says it in other places. But what I think he's saying is, is that the degree to which you go deep into Christian community, to that degree, you will experience the transforming power of the spirit. The more alone you are in the faith, the less you will actually know God. That's a quite bold thing to say, but I, that is, this is the teaching in the New Testament. The more alone you are in the faith, the less you will know of the transforming power of the Spirit of God. And the deeper you are in Christian relationships, praying with others, walking with others, confessing to one another, holding one another up, doing life together, the more you will actually know the transforming power of the Spirit of God because God inhabits a people. I had an experience of this yesterday with you all. When, um, when, when our new covenant partners join the church, we take about two hours together and we, and we, and we kind of get into, into groups and we just share our, our grace stories, our faith stories about how God has called us out of darkness into light. And there's a whole lot of tears and there's a whole lot of um, journey shared through pain and addictions and loneliness and divorce and sorrow and abandonment and rejection. And there's a whole lot of praise to see God who has met all of these people in these places of darkness and drawn them out into light. And when I walk out of that, do you know what happens to me? I have experienced the transforming power of the Spirit of God in the house of God. My own faith, in my own despair, my own reje- in my own sense of doubt, my own rejection, in my own insecurity, all of that is buoyed up as I experience the transforming power of the Spirit through the collective spirituality that is the church, because God inhabits a people. You know, our parish model um, is, is really, we are trying to restructure as a church to make this kind of community more possible for you, and so, so that you can enter into it more easily, so that you can find people in your area, your neighborhood, an oikos, a parish group, with whom you can actually live out a common life. There's, there's a lot of information on it in page 20 in our bulletin. Please don't turn there now. Um, th- that's what this is all about is creating that we would be living stones, living a common life together. And I want you to know this is not just for us, this is also for our neighbors, because if the place where people now most encounter God is not in a physical building, as much as we love our building and we're trying to fix it because it's broke, um, but if the main place people will encounter God is in a spiritual community, our main strategy as a church should be to get people not to come here, but to get out there, to get our people out there where the people are, because if this is true, if the place where our neighbors will most encounter Jesus is networks of Christian communities living a common life, then that's the temple. That's the place where God dwells. I've shared this story with you before, but when I was pastoring Easton Fellowship, the church that I pastored before this, it was a church plant. So early, in early days, it was quite small. There were about 75 of us. And one day we had a block party. 
And we were outside, we were eating Brunswick stew and bread. I mean, it's real simple. And along comes this guy named Rob, a agnostic Canadian computer programmer. And never been to church in a day in his life, right? So he walks up and, and, and he just walks right up to us and starts hanging out. He told me later, he had never seen such a weird, peculiar group of people hanging out together in his whole life. And he just needed to know what was causing this to happen. And so he walked up and he just started hanging out and he hung out for us a while. And then he showed up at the next gathering and he showed up at the next gathering. And he never really seen people like homeless people and lawyers hanging out. He had never seen people of like different races and classes and friendship. He had never seen people sharing possessions, opening homes, caring for one another. He started asking a lot of questions. Six months later, I baptized Rob. And he stood before the church. And I'll never forget what he said. He said, you know, I I fell in love with Jesus, but I fell in love with the community first. And there is where I met Jesus. He found the temple. He found the temple. So friends, let's do this. Let's get the churches out of the building as much as we can and live a common life together in our neighborhoods, not just for us, but so that our neighbors who could never come here, who would never come here, can meet him out there, the community, the temple where Jesus by his spirit now lives. We are living stones. You need to be a part of the whole. You're not freestanding. You're not a solitary brick. You're not a lonely Lego, friends. Life only makes sense when you're cemented in with others, okay? So that's the superstructure. Second, though, the foundation. And this is about our common authority. And that sounds kind of heavy. What do I mean by that? Look at verse 20. Paul says this. We are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Paul is speaking of those specially appointed apostles and prophets who were given inspiration from the Spirit to write the Scriptures. He's saying this revelation, this Word of God given, by, given to inspired human authors, is now the foundational authority on which the Christian community stands and falls. Just as, listen, just as the bricks in a building need a common foundation uh, for the building to be secure, so a community needs a common authority for the community to flourish. And Paul says here that our common authority is the word of God given to apostles and prophets. This is really relevant for us today because Americans have a hard time with authority. Um, Robert Bella was a famous sociologist who had a breakthrough book in 1986 called Habits of the Heart. Remarkable book. It's become a keystone book in the field. He coined this phrase, expressive individualism, which is now a term that many sociologists use to describe the nature of our cultural moment. And expressive individualism is essentially the idea that each person should reach his or her own moral and religious and spiritual beliefs apart from any authority. What he did is he did a big survey around the whole country and one of the questions, one of the, um, sorry, I just lost my slide. There we go. One of the sentences he put before people is he said this, each person should decide his or her own moral and spiritual beliefs apart from any spiritual or religious authority. Do you believe that? And 81% of Americans said they believe that. And this is in 1986, so this is 30 years ago. Today, this would be much, much higher, right? When it comes to what is good and right and wrong and what works for me, I am my own authority. This is baked into the American culture. You see it from everything from like the movie Babe to Elsa. You know, it's, it's everywhere, right? Expressive individualism. There's some contradiction here, though. As Americans, we live in contradiction. What if you were to change the statement and say each person should decide his or her own medical treatment apart from any medical authority? You know, each person should decide how to treat their body 
just, you know, regardless of any doctors, any hospitals, now some of you might actually attempt to do this. I don't think this is a good idea. This is actually a really bad idea because why would you ignore the accumulated wisdom and authority of ages of medical research in practice? No one would ever say they are their own authority when it comes to your own medical treatment, right? So yet when it comes to spiritual and religious matters, People have the audacity to believe that you should arrive at your own personal beliefs apart from any authority but myself. And you see, that makes no sense. It's a contradiction. What makes you think you can ignore the accumulated wisdom of religious communities that have grounded their lives in the creeds and the scriptures for millennia? It just doesn't work to say my feelings and my desires will tell me, will be the basis of authority for my life because not only may your feelings and beliefs be out of touch with the bigger spiritual reality, but even your own feelings and desires are contradictory. <laughs> you know, mine are, don't you? I have many contradictory feelings and desires. I have a very strong desire to be healthy. I also have a very strong desire to eat gelati celeste ice cream three times a day. <laughs> These two desires are very strong in me, and they ever war against one another, and one must die. And I am not sure which one will yet. You see, it would be a disaster if I lived, if I allowed my desires and feelings to be an authority for my life. I need a deeper authority to arbitrate my desires so that I personally can flourish. Do you hear what I'm saying? How much more for a community? A house needs a foundation. A community needs a common authority. I love to watch soccer. When you watch a professional soccer game, you see a community under a common authority. You see a group of men or women submitted to the rules of the game, surrendered to the boundaries of the field, submitted to the calls of the referees most of the time. Um, you see a, a submission to, to one another, respect for one another. You see a collective submission to the greater authority, and because of that, they have a beautiful game. And this is also why watching preschool kids play soccer is so hilarious, because as it says in Judges, each one did whatever seemed right in his own eyes, <laughs> right? They're not, they not submitted under a common authority at all. Um, a community only flourishes under a common authority. It is not our feelings, our whims, our desires, but our commitment to surrender together to the Lord who has made his will plain in his word. This does not mean we understand everything in the Bible. There's a lot of things that are hard to understand. This does not mean that we agree about everything in the Bible. Um, it does not mean we always get along. It means that together we all agree that there is something greater than our hearts, greater than our feelings and whims and desires that we surrender to together that directs our common life and that is God's will and voice made known through his word. A few years ago, I helped a couple of people work through a pretty deep conflict. And um, I'll never forget that one of the guys said to me, um, you know what I want? I want to hold a grudge and refuse to forgive and never talk to him again. That's what I want. I said, okay, is that what you want to do? He said, no, because what I know is that God is calling me to forgive, calling me to be reconciled and to move towards this other in love. And he did. And that is a, a very simple example, but a powerful example of two guys surrendering their desires to the authority of the word of God and under that authority, God was glorified and the community flourished. What these new members are doing today is a radical act of counterculture in an age of expressive individualism. They are saying, no, we're not choosing to live our lives as individual authorities. We are coming under the authority of a community. That's what you guys are saying today. Coming under the authority of a community 
who together we are seeking to come under the authority of the grace of God and his living word. And that's beautiful. Okay, so that's our common authority. One last thing. We've seen our common life, the superstructure, um, our common foundation, the apostles and prophets, and finally we see the cornerstone, which is our common identity. And I do realize that square is not in the corner. I tried that and it looked weird. So I put it, I put it in the center. Yeah. Now, cornerstones, don't, don't think of uh, like a cute ceremonial brick with a date stamp, right? That's, that's not what an ancient cornerstone was. A cornerstone in ancient times was a huge load-bearing stone, sometimes up to 500 pound, tons, that determined the structural integrity of the whole building. The cornerstone was the centerpiece. The whole structure was built up and around it, and for the building to be secure, every line, angle, cornerstone had to be tied into the cornerstone, which held everything else together. Paul is making a powerful statement here. He says, Christ himself is the chief cornerstone, and listen, in him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. Everything is tied into him. In the end, it comes back to him. He's saying our common identity is now held together by a person, Jesus, crucified and risen for us. You know, every community, to be a community, has to have a shared sense of identity. Um, a while ago, I, I, I got into um, triathlons for a little bit, and I discovered this very strange subculture of triathletes um, in our city, and they're kind of everywhere, and they're very you know, interesting people. Um, they kind of have certain ways of talking, certain ways of dressing. They don't mind like walking around in spandex you know, all the time. Um, they talk in weird ways. They eat weird things. You know, they, they have almost like a whole language themselves to say things like, you know, I, I was bricking and I nearly bonked up on the far side uh, and then my chain sucked, came up up the hill and I'm not going to DNF that Mary. I'm like, what? Are, are you talking English? It, it, I mean, it's like it's, they're, they're, held, they're held together um, with this shared sense of identity that we are people who rise early, drive hard, and eat gross protein bars. Like, that's who we are. That's what we do. Like Geico says, right? That's what we do. Um, a community cannot exist without a shared identity, whether you are a triathlete or a train spotter, um, whether you're a who or a hokey, whether you're a conservative or a liberal, whatever, however way you think about yourself. Communities are built around a common identity, and they have to have that to exist to differentiate themselves from other groups. You know what I'm talking about? But there's a dark side to all of this because the deeper the sense of identity goes, the greater the superiority, the greater the power to exclude, the greater the potential to, in some cases, even exploit and do violence. Y'all, identity is a serious problem in our world right now. In some ways, the, the, the less common foundation we have as a society, the more we watch our society collapse into identity fiefdoms competing for power. Have you seen that on the news? I have. The church is called to be different, friends. Church must be different because we do not build our shared identity around being good people, nice people, smart people, holy people, conservative people, progressive people, innovative people, missional people, generous people. In fact, we don't build our identity on anything that we are or anything that we do. We build our identity on someone who has done something for us. You hear what I'm saying? We build our identity on Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. 
who through him we have experienced death and resurrection. We have a shared identity in being sinners saved by grace, in need of saving. Therefore, we are radically humble, recognizing we're better than no one. We have a shared identity of being loved so we can love any and every person and extend grace as we have received it. Jesus is our cornerstone, our shared identity. And the deeper your life is tied into him, and the deeper our community is tied into him as our cornerstone, the more we're able to flourish as this diverse, multi-generational, humble, yet hospitable community of love because we are held together by Jesus, the cornerstone. I was once trapped in an elevator for a couple of hours with total strangers, about seven or eight of us. By the end, when we got out, we were besties, right? Like we knew each other's names, we knew each other's stories. We had grappled, you know, wept together, you know, laughed together, rejoiced together. We were bonded together despite our many, many differences. And this is what happened when, when athletes uh, are bonded together through common uh, uh, practice and competition. Soldiers are bonded together through training and war. There's something that binds people together that is deeper than blood, deeper than race. And yet we have gone through something even more dramatic than war or competition or even a, a, a stalled elevator. We have died and risen with Christ together. We've been through death together. We've been through life together, bonded together through his redeeming work. Christ is our cornerstone. And let me ask you this. Let me, let me be as personal as I know how to be. Is Christ your cornerstone? Is he your cornerstone? I want each one of you to, to hear me on this. Is he your cornerstone? I don't just mean, do you believe in him? Or do you think he's savior? I mean, is he your cornerstone? Is he the reason you wake up in the morning? Is he at the heart of your everyday life? Is he at the very center of all your decisions? Does everything come back to him? Whether it's how you think about your money, how you think about relationships and conflict, how you think about your future and your vocation, how you think about your kids and your ambitions, in your investments, every, does everything, is he the cornerstone? Because I promise you, if something is going wrong in, in your life, if you are not flourishing, you could even be suffering and flourishing. If you are not flourishing and if there is not flourishing in a relationship and if there is not flourishing in a community, it's very much possible it is because Jesus is not your cornerstone, that everything is not tied into him. And if that's true for you, the invitation is here. As Peter says, he says, come to him. Don't you love that in verse 2? Come to him. You don't have to feel guilty that Christ is your not cornerstone. You don't have to whip yourself and beat yourself up. It just means coming to him. Coming to him, accepting his invitation, receiving his love, and start building your life, or rebuilding for some of you, rebuilding your life on Christ the cornerstone. Only he can hold you up. Only he can keep you secure. Only he can hold our community together. So friends, let me review the blueprint. Christ is our cornerstone. He gives us our common identity. We look to Jesus and Jesus alone for what makes you, you, and for what makes us, us. We're, we're built on a shared identity of our radical welcome in Christ. The foundation, our common authority. Together we surrender to the scriptures and we work together to put aside our own desires, surrendering them together to God's will for us in his word. And finally, the structure, our common life. You are not a solitary brick. Do you know this? Are you living this? 
Does anyone know your greatest sins and struggles? Does anyone know the issues you're having in your marriage, the struggles you're having in your job? Is anyone walking alongside you and helping you grow? You are not meant to be alone. Are you ready to give up your independence and move into love? Because unfortunately, you cannot have both. He calls us out of isolation and into love. So come to him, the living stone, the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for your love and your mercy that is given to us in Jesus. We pray now that we would be that living, these living stones built together in a common life, held up by this common foundation of your word and tied in to Jesus, the cornerstone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.